Coming soon to own on video cassette. Back on the Y2K front, despite all the assurances that the Y2K computer problems are under control. Team's debut of Star Wars to be the opening act for a multi-billion dollar summer show. Only one question remains, just how many box office records can one movie break? You take the blue pill, the story ends. I see dead people. Malkovich, Malkovich. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. I will not apologize for what I need. I will not apologize for what I want. Five, four, three, two, one. Happy 1999. Hey everybody, welcome to 1999, the year that rocked cinema. Uh, my name is Jared Stossel. My name is Andrew Tucker. And this is the podcast where we do a deep dive of every film from the year 1999 and really go deep into what made it one of the greatest years in all of cinema. Um, thank you to everyone that has already listened and supported from the first official episode, episode zero, where thank we you. kind of... Yeah, where we got into the show, where we talked about what it was going to be in our interview with uh, Brian Raftery, the author of Best Movie Year Ever. Um, he's a fantastic guest. Um, but today we are doing the first film, and you can follow along with this. We talked about this in the first in the first episode, obviously, about the first uh, several episodes that we're going to do, which are all going to be the highest grossing films from the year 1999, the top 10 highest grossing. So the first of that list is none other than Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. I don't know <laughs> trademark Disney. <laughs> I thought now you were going to join Disney. in with me there. That, that got a little weird. <laughs> No, it's good. I wanted you to do your thing. So when we started planning this podcast, I insisted that episode one be about episode one. And I how, agreed with it. How fucking perfect is that? Okay? Yeah, it worked well. It's perfect for so many reasons. One, because they're both episode one. Um, but two, because what better movie to kick this off than The Phantom Menace? Yeah. I'm so excited to talk about this. I agree with this. There's a lot to talk about with this movie. It's a Star Wars film, and that's something that we both love very, very much. There's some great things about this film. There's obviously a lot of criticism that came into it, which we'll get into as this goes on. Um, but I'm very excited to dissect this. I've never, I've never done that on a level other than just kind of bullshitting with friends talking about the movie and I think one of the things that we really wanted to go into and talk about with this that I really admire and was happy that we decided to do is to talk about all aspects in the sense of things that we liked and things that we didn't like rather than just talking about what everybody hated and particularly in the last few years given how the Star Wars fandom has been pretty negative when it comes to 
uh, criticism of really anything. Even uh, so, <laughs> man, I think the what we liked and what we disliked segments are going to be a little bit uneven in terms of time. Just saying. Yeah, that's yeah. Just it is. saying. I, I mean, we'll see. We'll see how it goes, and we'll see how long we talk about things. I, I feel like we'll find more that we like about it than we originally thought. Obviously, there are gripes and there are complaints and things that I think are valuable and fair criticism. But we'll, anyway, we'll get into that later. Um, to start this off, let's get going. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace was released on May 19th, 1999. It was directed and written by George Lucas, who created the original Star Wars series. Um, it was his first film back as a director since the original Star Wars in 1977. It was produced by Rick McCallum and released by Lucasfilm and 20th Century Fox. Um, it stars actors such as Liam Neeson, Ewan McGregor, Natalie Portman, and Jake Lloyd, among numerous other people that we're going to dive into later. Um, and the film centers around two Jedis, Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi. Okay, uh, I got to stop you there, years. Jared. Is it Jedis or Jedi? What's the plural of Jedi? Shit, that's a good and point. And I'm not doing this to be a dick. I'm doing no, this. No, no, no. That's a good point. Um, I think that the plural is actually Jedi. I think so, too. Yeah, like, but then you could say Jedi Knights. Right, because so, Jedi is also an adjective and a noun. No one gives a shit. <laughs> I'm sorry. No one cares. No, it's Continue. fine. That's a, Just, good, that's you know a good question. Keep going. Keep going. The film is about and centers around two Jedi Knights, Qui-Gon Jinn and uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, who are brought on board to a trade dispute that is going on within the planet of Naboo. They're then, their ship is damaged, and they're then taken, not they're taken, they end up they're having going to, to be taken. Yeah. <laughs> Just because it's Liam's Neeson's doesn't mean that they're going to get taken, Jerry. Did you say Liam's Neeson? Yeah, dude, Key and Peele, come on. <laughs> that was a good coincidence, I like that. Um, is about two Jedi Knight who end up on Tatooine where they find young Anakin Skywalker who, as we the story unfolds, goes on to become Darth Vader. Spoiler and, alert, by the way. Yes. If you haven't seen these movies that were released 50-something years ago. Let's talk about some of the people that were in this movie because if you look at the cast of this film, the... It's nuts how many people are in this and how many people, even if they weren't necessarily really known at the time, went on to just, I mean, amazing careers in film and television and others that didn't. But again, we'll get into that as to why that didn't happen later. Um, It's pretty wild. Like, if you look at the cast of this movie... I don't think they could make this movie today with these same people in it. Mm -mm. I don't don't think there's a way. Even with, like, the massive... Like, what's the word that I'm thinking for? Ensemble casts that they're getting nowadays. I don't think that this movie would happen with these people if it were absolutely not. Yeah, there's there's way too much in terms of. Um, I mean, Sam Jackson has a small part in this movie, like a tiny part. That would that would never happen now. Um, I, and I think that, and I obviously, yes, he did play um, Nick Fury, who has a, a bit of a smaller role. But even then, it's, I don't think he would do it for as much as he was paid for Star Wars. I mean, he did say in a lot of the things that were, um, that were done as behind the scenes features on the film that he just, he wanted to be in a Star Wars movie, which a lot of people in this film, you can tell that they just really wanted to be in a Star Wars movie and it shows on their face and it's awesome. And it's a lot of fun. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, you have Liam Neeson as Qui-Gon Jinn, who prior to the 90s, he was in a lot of TV shows, he was in miniseries, he was in smaller films. His biggest film was in 1994, 1993, Schindler's List, uh, directed by George Lucas's good friend Steven Spielberg. It was a little bit of a different contrast much different contrast to this movie this one's a lot more fun um (laughs) schindler's is a very important piece of film but this is definitely two very polar opposite films um but then he sort of started to blow up after star wars with uh batman begins and the dark knight rises where he plays ra's al ghul obviously we joked about this earlier the taken series um and things like that yeah and he also came back to do his classic Qui-Gon voice for the Clone Wars TV series. Yes. Which, if you have not seen that, is badass. I'm about to... I've seen the movie. I saw the Clone Wars movie, and I saw clips of the show, but now that the whole thing's done, now I'm getting ready to like binge the whole thing for the first time, and I'm very excited to do so. Definitely worth it. Yeah. Um, you have Ian McGregor as young Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um the only thing that he was truly known for at the time, and I believe it was one of the films that he got cast... It's the re- This film that he did previously was the reason he got cast as Obi-Wan because George Lucas saw him in a movie by director Danny Boyle called Train Spotting, which is a fucking crazy movie if you have ever get the chance to see it. Um, it's not for the faint of heart. It's very disgusting and very grimy, but he does an amazing job acting in it, and I can totally see some of the reasons why he pulls him as this leading man and this character who is just so ambitious and so out there, and I appreciated his choice. And he's obviously gone on to be in a bunch of amazing things. Yes, of course. Since episode one, um, I don't know if I would include necessarily episodes two and three as amazing things, but he was in those. Uh, he was also in Moulin Rouge, Black Hawk Down, Big Fish, I Love You, Philip Morris, Birds of Prey. And then, of course, we just found out recently that he's reprising his role as Obi-Wan for Disney+, Plus, which is going to be awesome, I hope. If it's anything near as good as The Mandalorian, it's going to knock your socks off. I think John Favreau knows what he's doing with being kind of the the director kind of like how kevin feige is in charge of like the marvel direction and plotting everything out i feel like john favreau is taking that approach with it so i i trust him i so far i have no reason to not trust him but i'm i'm excited to see where this goes um and big fish by the way is like one of my all-time favorite movies it's easily one of tim burton's best films um in my opinion um fantastic yeah so i'm ex- i'm always excited to see him in this movie um i think actually the biggest actor that came out of this movie was natalie portman who played uh queen amidala and pa- or padme amidala um she the only thing i'd known her to be in prior to this she was in, i know she was in mars attacks see um, and i didn't realize that prior to doing research for this yeah i did not know that she wasn't in very many things, but I also didn't know that she was in Mars Attacks, and so now I really want to go back and watch Mars Attacks. Yeah, I want to watch Mars Attacks, too. Um, I know that she was in um, Leon the Professional, which is a an incredibly violent movie uh, from Luke Besson, uh, and she was, I mean, she was a kid when she did it, and it was like, it, and but she stood out with a really powerful performance. I mean, even with roles like that, even if she was in 
small roles or supporting roles, you always saw that she just had this absolute star potential as an actress to be really convincing. And that was, um, I mean, George talks about in George, y'all are on a first name basis. Yeah, now? shut up. Um, <laughs> what I mean is, there's a. I should start with this. There's a documentary that was on the DVD for episode one, um, but it's on YouTube. You can find it out there. But it's called um, the Beginning, which is basically a documentary as to how they made the film, documents all of it. But you just kind of see why he chose Natalie Portman. Talks about how she worked as an actress and how. When they started filming, he's like, I was really, ex he said something when they're just walking down the hall. He's like, I was really excited. She like hit every mark. She was totally on it. I don't have to worry about her for the rest of the shoot. And I'm good with that. And you could tell that just from, not only from Star Wars, but from all of the other films she's in after Star Wars. Uh, v for Vendetta, the other Berlin, Berlin girl, Black Swan. She's of course in Thor, Garden State. I mean, the list for her filmography goes on. And it's... Um, she has definitely one of the best resumes of everybody of anybody out of that cast. Yeah, she got she got lucky yeah. having this as a jumping off point. Yeah, sure. definitely. <laughs> and also so impressive to me that as she was filming all of these movies, she was at Harvard getting her um, degree in like I think it was in molecular biology or something like that. I can't remember specifically, but either way, she got wow. like a. Uh, a bachelor's degree from Harvard while filming the, the movies and I always found that I was like holy shit that's awesome go now um, yeah good for her um, going going from the high of Natalie Portman's career yeah so then we enter uh, a, a new low yeah and it's it's unfortunate uh, some of the actors that are in this film as well I'll kind of talk about these two together because of and we'll get into this a little bit more as well as time goes on I've said that quite a bit already, but it's just we have the, a big discussion planned for this particular topic. But Jake Lloyd, who played Anakin Skywalker, and Ahmed Best, who played the character Jar Jar Binks. So both of these characters are brought up in the same conversation because they received an abhorrent amount of backlash. I think it's one thing to say that you can not like or even hate a character, but that's the character that should and that should stay with that whereas the actors themselves basically got bullied out of existence and it's just i don't know it doesn't sit well with me and it really bothers me when everybody talks about it, it didn't sit well with them either no. um i mean right let's let's give a little bit of detail on this so jake lloyd was what i, I don't if you're under 12 i don't know how old you are he was either four or he was 10 i have no idea when the movie came out but yeah he was, a, he was a young child he's in this movie which is like a dream come true for anybody especially a little kid after the movie comes out people are just like what the fuck was that dude and he was getting bullied at school kids were making lightsaber noises when he would walk by all these just terrible things and it's he said that it made his life a living hell he destroyed all of his Star Wars memorabilia. He kind of went a little wild. Um, he was arrested at least once. Um, he's been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. His mother just released a statement about it, I think about three months ago, basically just saying that, you know, their kid never came back from Tatooine, basically, is, is what happened. Um, 
And so his his life took definitely a, a downward spiral after this movie. And like you said, um, it's because people were blaming him for kind of the, the shit sandwich that they were served in the theater, or so they thought. Um, and it's really not his idea, you know, or his fault. No, he was a kid. Right. He's he's maybe maybe not as good as some other child actors, but, like, they're child actors. They're not, Yeah. you know. They're not great. <laughs> yeah, it, it's they're not. You're not supposed to be perfect when you're a kid. You're supposed to mess up, and I think that it was it was incredibly unfortunate that the fandom that he got so much backlash from for doing a performance that was not up to the level of um, excellence or to the level of expectations that people in the Star Wars fandom had given that this was also the first Star Wars film since 1985, I think, was when Return of the Jedi came out. And everybody was like, oh my god, there's more. And it was, I mean, it was one of the biggest, if not the biggest movie opening of all time. I don't know if any film, I, I think that Avengers Endgame came pretty close in terms of hype and expectation because there really was so they kind of they did what this film did there was so little known about it other than clips and little snippets of information that you got before you went in whereas with a lot of other films particularly in a series like you kind of know where it's going to go even you know you know that what you're going to be what you're going to be in for more or less with this one and that's particularly amplified because of the internet and how accessible social media is in destroying everything um, in terms of, like, that's why there's spoiler alerts on everything. You brought it up last time when you said that now you can't go on to Facebook for five minutes without somebody, like, ruining the entire episode of uh, Game of Thrones. Um, Yeah, so I think that that was just, it was a really unlucky match. Like, I, it's lucky, of course, he got to be in Star Wars, and that's really awesome, but it was unlucky that, he was that that was the backlash that he had to endure absolutely um, man from I this mean, the, particular group of people the fans were were brutal about this movie as a lot of hardcore fans are still about movies today but you know even ewan mcgregor is quoted as saying that he's never met or he's never had an experience with a star wars fan quote unquote he said that the people he meets are quote the fuckers who want me to sign star wars photos so they can sell them on the internet Right, he said they're not fans; they're parasitical lowlifes and fucking wankers. I can hear it in his Scottish accent too, and it sounds awesome. <laughs> parasitical lowlifes and fucking wankers. Yes, like that right? exactly. And, and he was good in the movie, and this is the kind of shit that he's saying, right? So imagine being a little kid who is not—I mean, dude, you don't even know how to handle your problems like at school, and then suddenly no. you've got the weight of this entire franchise on your shoulders. It's, it's terrible. Continuing on that, we talked a little bit about Ahmed Best as Jar Jar Binks. Jar Jar Binks is a character that Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan meet when they land on Naboo. They, Qui-Gon Jinn saves his life from basically being run over by one of those transports. It's his first um, mistake. <laughs> Jesus, keep it together. And um, then he sort of acts as a guide to take them to the Gungan City, where they can barter a way to get back to Naboo. Basically, he acts as kind of their guide, and he joins the journey, basically, as he continues on. 
So Ahmed Best was cast um, in the role of basically an enti- almost entirely CGI character. He was in a production of Stomp. This is basically the B-list version of the Blue yeah. Man group. <laughs> Somewhat, yes. Um, but the vast majority of his career after he did episode one was voicing Jar Jar Binks in video games and TV series. He was on The Clone Wars. He was in, he even parodied, parodied himself in an episode of Robot Chicken, which is kind of cool if you can take a, um, a hit at yourself. That's kind of fun. Um, what? I mean, phrasing, <laughs> but... You, you know what I mean? Like, if yeah. what I, not by taking a bat, like a hit at yourself and, be, and being self-deprecating, but if you can joke around and you can play with the character a little bit outside of that realm, I think that's cool. I think when actors come back and they reprise their voices on other things, I always think that's fun. I think that Family Guy does that sometimes. I've seen, um, I think even for a period of time, South Park did that. They had George Clooney return in... Um, as the doctor in ER in the the movie, which we'll talk about later this year, which is pretty funny. I like that. If people can kind of take a joke and make it their own thing. I Yeah, I agree, man. I think my point is that it, it took him a while to get to that place, right? Yes, it, he's ab- on record, 100%. He's on record as, as saying that he actually almost ended his own life kind of as a result of just the 20 years of bullshit that he faced after playing Jar Jar. And this is a guy who you never even saw his face on screen and people are still seeking him out and giving him shit. Um, he seems to have sort of overcome that, you know, but I mean, imagine just the pressure of having people tell you that you destroyed their childhood. Yeah. Right. Which, like, which he fucking didn't grow the fuck up. He didn't anybody out there who still feels like that. You grow up seriously. It's not, you can have an issue with a character. I, I said this before, but you can have an issue with a character. You can have a, uh, an issue with a character's like plot choice and the story choices that they're given or things like that. But to have a problem with the actor so much to go up to them and say to him or her and say, you ruined my childhood. The movies are still fucking there. You don't have to watch this one. <laughs> like the originals are still there. If you can find them, you can really even find the originals and pull out your VHS player because you're still living in the 80s um, and rewatch them exactly as they were. That has not changed. It's just, I, I think this movie, while it did a lot of really great things for technology and for filmmaking, this film really exposed somewhat of the toxicity that uh, fan bases can have and how much of a problem that can be. And it was only kind of a precursor to things because if you look at, I mean, if you look at the the Last Jedi, the second movie in the sequel series, there was an actress that uh, was bullied off of social media because every day she went on, everybody just told her the same shit, and she had to like basically leave the internet. And that's like, it's just so incredibly unwarranted and uncalled for. It's a little bit. Just a couple of other basically quick mentions for characters that appeared in these. These are some of the longer-running characters that appeared in these films. Ian McDermott, who played Senator Palpatine in Darth Sidious, who was originally in Revenge or not Revenge of the Sith, Return of the Jedi as the Emperor, and that was and uh, Anthony Daniels returned as C three PO. Kenny Baker returned as R two D two. 
Uh, Sam Jackson is in here for the first time as uh, the Jedi Mace Windu. Which is just the best um, thing of all time to happen. Which I is, was so which fucking happy. Really awesome. Even as a child, I was like, say motherfucker. Just say it. Just say, <laughs> you can't train him, motherfucker. That's all I wanted. And every time I rewatch this movie, it's all that I want. And did you know that he requested that his lightsaber say BMF on the hill? Which, of course, I did not stands know for that. bad motherfucker. From Pulp, Pulp Fiction, Fiction yes. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't the know that. That's know. awesome. Yeah. Um, Frank Oz, as Yoda returns, um, we'll talk about this a little bit more later. Because Frank Oz is definitely in the movie, but in two different ways. Um, between now, when it was between when it was released, and the version that people see today. Um, and then Ray Park, um, who I forgot to write down on our sheet, uh, which was a huge disservice, uh, played one of the most intense villains in the history of the Star Wars saga, Darth Maul. He says, I think, throughout the film, maybe like two sentences, and he's yet the most like terrifying-looking, most intense uh, Star Wars villain that's ever been on well, screen. Well, dude, I one mean... Of them. The thing about Ray Park is he he really wasn't an actor before this. He was like a wushu master, and he competed for Great Britain in competitions and shit. And he was like... I think the only movie he was in before this was in Mortal Kombat as like a, a Raiden stunt double or something like that. And so he comes into this movie literally just to do fucking amazing lightsaber shit. That's the whole reason that he's cast in this movie, is just to do the coolest shit you've ever seen with a lightsaber and that's honestly like a, an amazing casting choice i think star wars starting back with the new hope it, they were always really good at casting people who they felt were right for the role and not casting people who were just famous and needed to be in a movie and i think ray park as darth maul speaks to that in this movie kind of better than any of the other casting choices a hundred percent i mean even if you look back at those films in like the first movie the first the the biggest known actor in the original star wars film was sir alec guinness who had been in bridge on the river kwai and lawrence of arabia and was known as a dramatic actor harrison ford was in he had a small part in american graffiti and everybody else was completely unknown everybody in that film and i think that definitely speaks to i i love that casting choice as well for everything that you just said it's absolutely indicative of what star wars focuses on in the fact that it's not so much about um it's not so much about character stories but it's or um star power but it's about the story itself boom you nailed it all right let's dive in to the making of this movie um to give some back background and some context, George Lucas first rose to prominence in 1977 in the 80s with the re- excuse me with the release of the original Star Wars trilogy. He'd really only made two films before those, which were THX 1138 and American Graffiti in 1973. Um, while he was doing the trilogy, he was also getting writing credits for Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Indiana Jones film series all the way through 1989 um, or 1990. So the point is, if you didn't know this already. He's a busy guy. He doesn't yeah, do he a very lot, busy but the guy. shit he does is pretty good. Yeah, and he produced a lot of shit, like, in executive producer roles. and so He had a lot going on in the 70s and 80s. A lot of projects going on. 
Um, after Return of the Jedi was out, he said that he really didn't have any more interest in making a Star Wars film. He wanted to focus on other projects. But with that being said, Lucas had, deci- had decided that the storyline of the entire Star Wars film, at least for the Skywalker saga, was too big to tell in an entire film. Thus, that was the sequels that followed, as well as ideas for a prequel series. He wanted the future to look lived in during the original. So he he had basically the idea to do a prequel series and then the series that came out in the 70s and 80s that everybody knows as the original Star Wars. He had to kind of, he had outlines for them, like very, very like brief outlines of, hey, this happens in this one, this happens in this one, this happens in this one, boom, 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 here are your plot points. But then he really was thinking about which ones he wanted to do first, and he said he wanted that the the future of the 1977 trilogy to basically look like it was lived in. So if you look at how Tatooine is kind of beaten up, it's really desolate. Luke lives in the middle of a desert where there's just like everything kind of looks like it's taken blaster hits from stormtroopers and from lasers and ships. Uh, he decided to go with the original series first, and then the timeline of the prequels was supposed to look more pristine before there was war, before the Empire took over and destroyed everything. I think there was even a a rumor that when they were gonna they were gonna try to have Coruscant, the planet that was basically an entire city, but in the older films it was gonna basically look just like war torn. It was gonna be completely blown up and destroyed, but they nixed that, but if you look in comparison to the prequel films, it's beautiful. It's one of the coolest looking shots in the entire film. And he wanted a really... That establishing shot of Coruscant? It, yeah, dude, it's yeah, amazing. Yeah, and just how... I mean, they describe it, the entire planet is just one city. And that's insane to pull off. And um, it his choice to do the prequel films later when the technology caught up makes a lot of sense even though at the time no everybody was like what the hell are you talking about that makes no right. sense but well and, and so yeah. because of that he finished up return of the jedi right and then it's kind of this waiting game for a little while and when he starts to notice that the technology is kind of getting where he wants it there's really not a hundred percent certainty that star wars is still going to play right it's been a while and so Lucasfilm as a company started kind of testing the waters by putting out these sort of side properties and they started with just a novel Timothy Zahn's Heir to the Empire and I think that was one of a few but that one actually hit the top of the bestseller list in 1991 and so when that novel comes out and hits the bestseller list little Georgie here is thinking oh shit okay okay I see some dollar signs floating around right so then the company starts doing these cross-promotional projects and they're basically saying, all right, we're going to create this giant interconnected universe of comics, novels, video games, toys, all this shit, right? They're basically doing off the big screen what MCU has been doing on the big screen now. And so they are testing the waters with like an X-Wing series that came out that had a series of really militaristic sort of sci-fi novels, um, and that kind of started off the whole expanded universe or legends series. And then also shadows of the empire, which I think it's fucking great. There's an amazing game amazing um, game. <laughs> built off of a novel series of comic books, trading cards, action figures, all that fancy money making stuff. Right. 
So all these things are coming out, and meanwhile, George Lucas is working on the script. And he's just watching as society grows hungrier and hungrier to see these Star Wars characters back on the big screen. And so that kind of laid the groundwork for Phantom Menace to come out in 1999. Absolutely. And, I mean, during that time, he, yeah, he started writing that story just on a, in that documentary, it shows the first day he starts writing, which... Uh, he just was sitting in his office, and uh, I think it was like September 1994 or something. He just basically sat in his office with a yellow legal pad and started scribbling ideas, and that was that was just the beginning. He didn't know if it was going to turn into anything or not, but he, months later, had a fully fleshed-out story and ideas for not just for that film, but for the outline of the entire exactly the beats that it was going to hit for the prequel series. This is the 1st of November, 1994. Today is my first day of writing the new Star Wars series. I took my kids to school this morning. Uh, my oldest daughter was sick all night. I got no sleep whatsoever. This is my life. This is the hole I live in, a cave I hibernated. I have beautiful, pristine yellow tablets ready to go. Fresh blocks of pencils. I'm all set. All I need is an idea. I mean, previous to that, as they're testing the waters for it, he's he's the executive producer on films like Labyrinth, um, Howard the Duck, which is now kind of a cult film. Um, didn't do well at all when it first came out, but is now regarded as like a, a fan favorite among people. Um, he executive, which I didn't know before we did this. He executive produced the Land Before Time series, uh, Radio Land Murders, um, and then he was, of course, with Indiana Jones. He wrote another film called Willow in 1988, the latter of which was directed by Ron Howard, who has gone on to have an incredible career, um, as we know today. As the narrator as of Arrested Development, and the narrator of Arrested Development. Which did I he do anything forget about else until I watch it? That's what I know. You him know, as. I don't know. I don't think he's done yeah, anything I, else, I don't right? Know. Yeah. Lazy fuck. Eh. <laughs> As he directs basically a movie a year. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, no, it's awesome. He has he has some really great stuff in his catalog. Um, in 1993, that's when he started announcing he was going to do the prequel series. Um, the screenplay itself ended up being adapted from a 15-page outline that was written by Lucas in the 70s, but he basically took the time and fleshed it out and got it to where it was. What a lot of people don't know about that 15-page outline is that most of it was actually just nude drawings of Jar Jar Binks. I'd, I was not aware of yeah. that. Yeah, it's in the documentary. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't yeah. remember that yeah. part of it. Yeah, nude drawings you know what? of Jar Jar you know Binks. What? You know what? They're owned by Disney now, so Disney probably cut that for copyright reasons. Um, I'm going to have to go back and look at yeah. that, see if I can work yeah, around dig that. around. Interesting. Eh, if you, if you Google it, you will find images. I do not want to Google that because here's the fucked up thing. That is out there because what is it? If you think of it, it's on the internet or something, whatever that weird rule is. So because you said that, it is somewhere on the internet, and I do not want to ever Turn see it. Turn your safe search off. Pour no yourself way. a glass of cognac. <laughs> and start <laughs> typing on those keys, Jared. Oh, God, no. Um, originally, Lucas was... Um, not wanting to direct these movies. He wanted to write it and then have somebody else direct it. So he approached three people who I just, I don't think that they had any caliber behind them. 
uh, Ron Howard, Robert Zemeckis, and Steven Spielberg, Scrubs. whatever they did. Yeah, whatever they did. Anyway, it, this is where it got interesting in that he approached these three powerhouse filmmakers to direct, particularly Spielberg. Um, Ron Howard was kind of starting his career at that point. He had promising work, but Robert Zemeckis did, he, did, did he, Back to the Future. You know what he was working on? What was he, he working, working on? on Ed TV and How the Grinch Stole Christmas. You know what? That's true. That's right. He Would was you rather direct Ed TV and How the Grinch Stole Christmas or Star Wars? You Well, this is where it gets interesting. Answering it in retrospect, Ed TV and How the Grinch Stole Christmas. <laughs> so in retrospect, what's interesting is that all of these directors were approached and they all said oh god no this is your thing i'm not touching this because and they all i think made the right choice but not because of whatever the criticism was for the film but because that story really was george lucas's entire vision and i think it would almost be a little bit weird if another i'd be i'm interested and i'm very intrigued to see what would have happened if like steven spielberg came in and directed it i think that would you know what would have happened what you saw the fourth Indiana Jones movie. That's exactly I what would have fucking happened. That's that's honestly, that's the only way that it could have been any worse. All right, so I'm gonna get a lot of shit for this, and I I really don't care. I don't have an issue with the fourth Indiana Jones movie. Right. I just okay. I don't. I saw it and I was like, okay, it's fine. You know, you're allowed to dislike <laughs> things. You can dislike things, and it's okay. And I do dislike things. And you should dislike that. I just didn't have an issue with it. We're gonna have a talk when when (laughs) when this whole coronavirus thing blows over. (laughs) We're gonna have a face to face on this, and we're gonna work it out. Kind of like the face to face that they had when they were riding the car through the jungle and fighting uh, as the monkeys were swinging in the trees and. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I'm going to be completely honest with you. I blocked everything <laughs> that happened in that movie out of my mind. I've Again, I didn't have an issue with it. Anyway, moving on. Um, once they got everything nailed in, they got everybody casted. Filming took place on June 26, 1997, and it ended on September 30th. All the principal photography. Um, it was primarily f- excuse me, filmed at Leavesden Studios in England. Um and then there were separate location shoots that they did for things like for Tatooine and for the beginnings of the pod race. They did it in Tunisia where they originally Wait. filmed the first Star Wars. They didn't go to Tatooine? They did not what go to fuck? Tatooine. No. And There's a what? shuttle at Disneyland that takes I you know. there. And it's included well, with the price of your park ticket. Well, not now. Jared, God damn it. I know. I know. I miss it. I made that joke because I miss Disneyland very much right now. Okay. Um, did you did you actually hear about what they did what they're doing in uh, Disney World for like the Star Wars hotel? Yeah. How they actually have a shuttle that you take yeah. and it feels like you're fl- that's yeah. oh my god that's amazing. it's gonna be cool. It's I gonna know. look I'm better so than the shuttles in Phantom Menace did. That's for sure. <laughs> oh my god. Um, and, uh, I think the only other pract- uh, like practical location they did was in Italy in a couple different places for the. Um, for the queen's palace and like exterior shots but everything else after that was all digitally rendered and filmed you know what's so sick or digitally composited you know what's so sick about the filming of this movie what's up on the first day 
all the actors show up not all of them i don't know how a call shoot works people show up on the first day right and fucking ian mcdermott is that how you say his name mcdermott ian mcdermott it's something like that something like that uh he shows up and he's the only fucking person besides like george lucas who knows that he's darth sidious and senator palpatine and none of the other stars of the movie know this shit and so they go through most of this filming talking about it and liam neeson didn't even find out until the premiere and he's like you fucking bastard (laughs) i didn't know and i can and i can imagine that scene happening in the lobby can you imagine of the holy shit oh that's That's amazing. amazing they took the fucking padme amidala switcheroo surprise and they made it real for palpatine and sidious and they did it to the actors that's amazing well it was kind of similar to how like obviously the much bigger reveal in star wars was the luke i am your father line from empire strikes back but one of my favorite stories about like that's easily one of my favorite stories now of like a reveal from star wars but there was this moment uh they filmed the scene where he gets he confronts Vader in the fight in Empire Strikes Back. And there was a wonderful uh, substitute uh, uh, revelation in that scene. And the way we filmed it, Vader said, you don't know the truth. Obi-Wan killed your father. And the idea of Alec Guinness being the, the real villain, I thought, wow, what a spectacular twist. And it's just as you see in the film, no, search your feelings, you know it's true. Wallop, the hand goes off. So vivid. The director, Irvin Kershaw, uh, took me aside. He came to my dressing room, actually, and he said, uh, I'm going to tell you something. I know it. George Lucas knows it. And when I tell you, you'll know it. But if it leaks, we'll know it was you. <laughs> so I said, what, what? And he handed me the piece of paper that said, I am your father. I was shocked. I said, is, is that is that true? He said, well, you search your feelings and we're going to play it like, yeah, it is true. So, oh my gosh, Dad Vader. <laughs> um, and then I was paranoid because I thought, uh, you know, uh, it was way before social media and all of that, but yeah. I had to keep it the secret for about a year and a half. So at the screening, when that happened, Harrison turned to me and said, hey, kid, you didn't fucking tell me that. <laughs> for the F-bomb. I only used it for historical accuracy. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. It's so good. Dude, you know, what the, um, you know what the biggest reveal of all time in Star Wars is, though? It hasn't what? happened yet. It's season two of The Mandalorian. It's the Baby Yoda gender reveal. <laughs> they're going to make a cake, and they're going to cut into it. And if it's pink... Baby Yoda's a girl, and if it's blue, Baby Yoda's a boy. Is this where blue milk comes into the Absolutely picture? Absolutely not, Jared. Yes! They use food coloring. Oh, shit. Because where are they going to get pink milk? Come on. Use your brain, food, for food. Christ's sake. They get it from Pink Banthas. <sighs> the Pink Bantha. <laughs> he's, yes. like a, he's like a fucking silly detective. Yep. That's what I... <laughs> It's me. I'm the pink that was, that was good. But is he played by Peter Sellers or by Steve Martin? That's the better question. Both. They switch <laughs> awesome. off. Awesome. I'm in. Every other line.
I think one of the most interesting things about this film was um, it was an absolute breakthrough for CGI characters. And there's in interviews and in documentaries, there's actually even a part in the documentary, The Beginning, where George Lucas says, Jar Jar is the key to all of this if we can pull this off. And everybody's kind of like, oh, that's weird. Why would you say that after that? <laughs> but if you look at what he was really talking about, and even as of last year, he said his favorite character of all time is Jar Jar Binks. You could think that it's maybe him trolling fans and whatnot, but if you look at the reality of what it was, the first ever computer animation in a movie was in Vertigo. The first combination of CGI and live action was in Tron, which was in the right. 80s. That's when tech started to really get into it. Tron is still a very cool-looking film. It's still one of the... Like, obviously, it's campy. I haven't watched it in a long time, but it's still, like, you're in a computer world, and you can absolutely see that. And it's it's it it's very of the age if that makes sense but and there are lots of other movies with small jumps between yeah, Tron there's like and phantom menace absolutely um who framed who framed roger rabbit is another film that combined uh animation uh pencil drawn animation with um live action people so there's there's a lot of jumps and things that they've done with it but this is a character that almost all of it was completely CGI. The only part of it that wasn't... Now it's different in the sense that people wear full motion capture suits where it's just like a blue bodysuit with a bunch of markers that are all around it and then somebody composites in the character a lot later. For this, they had to do some costume things. They had... Um, his arms are prosthetic, insert like... And I think his arms and his legs are prosthetic... And then he had a head that was like the point that people, so when they look up and they were acting, kind of like how an actor would have to look at a tennis ball if they were acting with a computer animated character. But it was the first thing where somebody was able to be an actor completely on screen and then replace it 100% with a computer animated image. And that had never been seen before. And it was, that effect has lasted I mean, I think even somebody made a joke to George Lucas at a Star Wars convention years ago, and uh, he was like, well, he said, yeah, people can say what they want, but he's like, if it wasn't for Jar Jar Banks, we wouldn't have Avatar, and we wouldn't have CGI and all of these other films that have lasted today. And there's a really good point to that, regardless of what people think of the character, that technology and what he did with it, I mean, it, it changed the way that digital cinema and films altogether are made. And that's why Jar Jar is his favorite character. Because yeah. Jar Jar, every single minute that Jar Jar Binks is on the screen, that's just George Lucas waving his big old dick around for everyone else in Hollywood to see. And what does a man love more than his own dick? Not much. And that, my friend, Jesus is Christ. why it's still his favorite character to this day. Every time he unzips his pants to take a leak, sees a little Jar Jar Binks down there. Disney, we'd still like to have one of your correspondents on one day on this show. Please don't let this discourage you. The same goes for you, Lucas. Don't let this discourage He's you. He's not going to let the truth um, discourage him. He knows. He fucking knows. My God. Anyway, um, I think that there's even something, if you note it, that the interaction between him and the Jedi are super impressive in the first scene where he tackles him the eye contact when they're first talking to him, you kind of forget after a while that you're like, 
oh, this is a computer animated character. Like it almost, it's really cool how you suspend your disbelief. Well, and being with in the that. theater for that first scene, yeah. dude, it's like holy shit, that's insane. Yeah. And then like later in the yeah. movie, when they're at Anakin's house, and Jar Jar keeps snatching up the apples with his tongue, and Qui Gon yeah. just grabs it like mid frog extension. I don't know what to call that. Frog extension seems like yeah. the right term. And he just grabs it. It's like, how the fuck did they do that? Holy shit. You must have Jedi reflexes if you race past. Don't do that again. It's amazing. And then all the all the visual effects people in the audience are like, no, do it again. We want to see it again. Do it again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As filming progressed with this, um, one of the things they did, they shot a number of the studio scenes at Leaves Den as they were building the sets. They got that done. The first uh, shot in the entire movie was actually between Darth Sidious and Darth Maul. Such a weird, sparsely populated. If the trace was correct, I will find them quickly, Master. Move against the Jedi first. You will then have no difficulty in taking the Queen to Naboo to sign the treaty. At last, we will reveal ourselves to the Jedi. At last, we will have revenge. But their first day of shooting in Tunisia, uh, they did a map. They did a small number of scenes. Um, in Mos Espa for Tatooine. The set was then hit that night by a windstorm, which could happen quite frequently in that desert. It was, I think winds were like 100 miles per hour. And when they came in the next morning, it destroyed nearly every set, including 90% of the pod racer engines themselves for that first scene. So while the, while the pod racer scene was CGI and like, everything going around when they're actually racing that setup scene where they're all there they built the models of all the racers so that they could actually interact with them so they could climb in and then they added everything in later but that was really interesting to watch in the documentary because it's funny how calm everybody reacts to it because if you look at the filmmaking from 1977 he, I mean, like, he was anxious every day. He was barely eating. He even, I think, got admitted to the hospital because um, he had hypertension and was, like, not eating. He, like, it, it was really bad. He was he was in a really bad place filming those films because he was just nervous every day. He was having panic attacks and anxiety. When this came up, 90% of the sets destroyed. He looked at it, and he's like, it's okay. We'll get it well, back and he together. Well, he knows 100% of it's going to end up being digital anyway so that makes it yeah. a little bit easier of a pill to swallow the engine sets look at that that is grim is it okay we have anakin the little boy these are his engines which play the most crucial part in the movie they're split in two which um doesn't look good yeah this is heartbreaking it is heartbreaking all right, I think, you know, again, if we push this back to the end, mm -hmm. I mean, if we can live with Anakin working on one engine, we've got the replacement pod, which is in good shape. This is pretty good shape. There's a little battering, but nothing yeah. that can't be fixed up. This piece we can actually crack. George was totally calm about the storm. The same thing had happened to him on the first Star Wars film. I say it's good luck. It is good luck. It happened, it happened last and, time, and it happened this time. Almost, it's like reliving it. Either you give up and you say, oh, well, let's go back to bed and you panic. The only real thing you can do is just try and get people to rally around the task at hand. 
Yeah, and everybody jumped on top of it. Everybody was, of course, bummed out, and they were like, oh my god, this is this is a huge bummer. We've worked for months on this. But it was really cool, as someone who wants to be a filmmaker themselves, to watch um, how the producers then immediately got on the phone, and they're like, hey, we need to actually move this date forward. Let's get this actor available for this date and this date. And the logistics of all of it was very fascinating and very cool to watch. And to see people that were pretty level-headed during something um, in an industry that can be really, really difficult to navigate, particularly for something as big as Star Wars. The other thing that I'll add into this was the beauty of the digital filmmaking in this movie is incredible. So while they would film Tatooine shots on location and the shots in the palace, the special effects team would then composite in photography that they took on location. So the scene where you see um, Padme's uh, ship out in the desert that whole background was photography that they had taken from being in Tunisia, and then they just did that and filmed that on a green screen um, and added that in. And then they would digitally add in wind or dust when it was needed and then blend the actors together on a soundstage. And there was really nothing that was ever seen like this. The Matrix started to do this when it was released earlier that year, but this, I think, started to really push that and I think that actually ended up enforcing, I mean, a number of films that obviously came out well after that. But um, there was really nothing ever seen like this, and it's amazing how it set the standard of most films today. Um, I think that it's almost akin to um, a painter constructing an entire painting, where instead of, here's my colors, here's the brushes that I'm going to use, here's this and that, it's now okay, here's the composite, here's the actors that I'm going to place in later, here's the effect that I need, so the ship's going to land. How do, what happens when the ship lands? The, the dust lifts up, so how do I time that so that it gets to where it needs? It's just, it's a very fascinating, it engages, I think, both the left and the right brain, which I think is really yeah, cool. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Um, as this film goes on, let's talk about the release and the reception of the film. Um, the opening day screenings for this film were absolutely... And now, for everybody who's listening to this, I want you, if you were born after a certain period of time, to really think about this. An age where there were no smartphones, social media was non-existent, cell phones were really just starting to come up in the public atmosphere. They really... my I mean, my biggest recollection of cell phones at least as they were wasn't until like early 2000s which is when they started to become more commercial but there was really only something that people in the business world the only had. thing you could use a cell phone for when this movie came out would be to call the theater and ask the person who worked there what time the movie was going to be that's literally all you could do Cinemas actually couldn't even sell tickets until two weeks after the film had been released due to the incredible demand. Because, like Andrew just said, if you're just calling to find out the time, imagine your entire phone banks are flooded all day with people trying to buy Star Wars tickets. Your box office has lines outside of it all day long for people trying to get Star Wars tickets. So they set a cap that they couldn't sell adv any advance tickets until after the two-week mark had passed. But as time went on, Lucas allowed for advance tickets to be sold on May 12th prior to the original May 21st release date. And because of this, scalpers wreaked absolute 
fucking havoc. They pushed some prices to as high as $100 per movie ticket, which is insane to think about, but people would well, pay it. People would absolutely pay it. What fascinates me the most about that is given the numbers that we have, which is like actual numbers from box office, this movie did just over a billion dollars at the box office. And that's thinking about the fact that in 1999, it was probably like $6 tops to go see this movie. And so some people are paying $100. I want to know what that actual cost ended up being. Right? Like if you include all that scalper markup, how much money that was spent it's on this movie? probably all in the billions. It's wild. And the budget was $115 million. So the disparity between that budget and that box office, holy shit. Yeah. There's one thing I do want to note about the billion dollar box office thing. Um, the film itself upon the, it stayed in release for 84 weeks. And in that release period, I think it made about 800 million or something like that over that period. But when I looked at the numbers for this, if you remember, they were originally before Disney bought Star Wars and Lucasfilm, they were going to re-release all of the films in 3D. Um, and so they started with episode one. Uh, Box Office Mojo counts those numbers um, in the entire grand, like, total gross of it. So overall, the movie made about a little over a billion dollars. It's still one of the highest grossing films, and that still counts towards theatrical release. But at the time of the release, it made close to a billion, and then it was pushed over the mark. But even then, I think the only film that had grossed this is the second highest grossing film of the 90s. The highest grossing film was Titanic, um, which is another actual big marvel in digital filmmaking for some of the things that it did. But that's another story altogether. Two weeks before the release, another interesting thing was that they changed the release date to May 19th, opening on a Wednesday instead of a Friday. And I actually respect this choice. They did it because they wanted to allow a chance for diehard fans to see it earlier so that kids and families who were going to go to the movie originally didn't get locked out of screenings and they had a better shot of it. And going. that's crazy because now really the only reason that they do that is if they know a movie's going to be shit. And if they want to get that's interesting box office numbers for opening weekend. That's if your opening really weekend is 5 days. Your numbers look a little better. So that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, I remember driving by, the, I mean, just even driving by the theater, and it was, um, I just remember lines all the way oh, around the block, man. like it was nuts. I went with my aunt, and we stood in line around the block. I don't know if it was opening day or opening weekend or what, but it was right after it came out, and we waited for hours, which sucked because I was a child. I was like, this is fucking terrible. But the moment we got in there and you hear that opening music start up, I was like, worth it. 100% worth it. The shot of all of the people in the theater uh, the night it premieres uh, that has circulated on the internet, when the fanfare comes on, it's just, it's awesome. And I, I, I'm glad that I got to see that vividly when the new Star Wars films came oh, man. out. Because yeah. I got that same feeling when I saw The Force same. Awakens. Shed a little tear. Um, it was, yeah, it was incredible. This is fucking awesome. Yeah! 
Rotten Tomatoes, uh, the critic aggregate, the film currently holds a, and this is interesting to unpack these metrics, it holds a 53% critic approval rating out of a total of 228 reviews with an audience score separate of 59%. So it just barely misses the mark. I think in order to be considered a like fresh, not rotten score, you have to be 60%. So it was, it's just like just <laughs> on the mark. let's be honest, that's still a D. Right, so to me, what's really interesting is to look at how this one stacked up compared to all the other Star Wars movies on Rotten Tomatoes, right? So I'm just going to run down the list really quickly, and these are only the critic ratings. Attack of the Clones, 65, so a little bit of a jump. Revenge of the Sith, we're all the way up to 80, which is higher than I would have expected. New Hope, 92, no surprise there. Empire Strikes Back, 94, okay. Return of the Jedi, 82, which to me makes a little bit of sense because the last movie in a trilogy has a lot of work to do and there's a lot of expectation. And so for that one to be a little lower, I get that. Force Awakens jumps back up to 93, which I agree, love that movie. Last Jedi, 91, almost maybe a little high in my opinion, but it's not up to me. Rise of Skywalker, 52%. So the only movie to score worse than Phantom Menace is Rise of Skywalker. And I think there's a reason for that. And I think that reason is there were such high expectations for both of those as like the bookends of this massive franchise. And so it's almost hard to imagine either of those movies getting a really high score. Yeah, you can't ever please anybody with Well, it. you can please some people, right? But you definitely can't please everybody. And I think yeah, that... Yeah, it's better said. It, it's just fascinating to me to see that the bookend is such a low score. And everything else is really relatively high. Except for Attack of the Clones. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, think it's, I think it's even funny because there's a clip online when... George Lucas screens the film for the first time and like they do like a rough cut so it's just him and the producers that's not the one they released the, the vi- rough cut oh shit it's a little disjointed seems like a lot of short scenes it's bold in terms of jerking people around but I may have gone too far in a few places cause that's what you <laughs> just very quietly that's what you want <laughs> from a movie is you want to yes. jerk people around <laughs> Um, this was when he said that it's a reference to the way the movie is edited and the flow or the lack thereof at the time. I, upon watching it recently, I think it flows a lot better um, than previous times when I'd seen it, particularly watching it with a, like audio commentary and seeing how they wrapped it up, how they bookended it and structured it. But upon watching a rough cut of a movie, I think Martin Scorsese said once in... Uh, it was other than that masterclass thing that he has, uh, the commercial for it or an interview or something, but he said, if you don't watch, he said, if you watch your first rough cut and you don't walk away feeling a little bit sick, uh, you may have a problem. (laughs) (laughs) And that's as someone who did edit rough cuts of films. Um, that's incredibly true. You, it's just, it's all over the place and it's messy. But the thing about George Lucas in this situation is he walked away from the rough cut feeling maybe not so hot, right he's like and then he kind of just doubles down on the weirdness of it 
And he's like, it's stylistically designed to be that way, and you can't undo that, but we can diminish the effects of it. And it's like, what is that? What does so, that mean? He sounds like Trump talking about the coronavirus. Stylistically designed I, I to disagree. be that way. I disagree. Can't do it, but we can diminish the effects of it. Put a little bleach on it's, the film. It's it's really bad how good you are at that. Impression. Well, I hear it all the time. Um, he said he he actually said quote that it was too late to do anything about the disjointed nature of the movie. So he watches the rough cut and he goes, "Yeah, it's fucking complicated, but it's gonna be." And then that's it. So, so George Lucas basically his filmmaking style, and it's something that when we get into the things that we liked about it, things we didn't like about it in that segment towards the end, um, George Lucas is very much a person or a filmmaker who wanted to always do things differently than they were. If you look at like, like I said, I went on a deep dive of this. I've read books about him. I've read, I've watched interviews, documentaries, all, all that stuff about his filmmaking style. Cause it's very interesting to me. Um, particularly because of that, because he doubles down on whatever he does. Even if people are like, eh, or people give Hades just kind of like, eh, I made it. That's what I wanted it to be. And I, I, there's something kind of punk rock to me about that and the way that it's like, you know, all right, if you're going to stick, if that's your vision and you're going to stick with it, I respect that. I may not love every choice you make, but as uh, someone who loves film and studies filmmaking and all that stuff, it's like, I respect it that you'd stuck by your choice and that you've really been like, you know what, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm not really going to let anybody influence me in my choice of this. And this is how See, we're going to do it. Um <laughs> He doesn't stick by his choices, though, because he he goes back okay. and fucks with his movies more than anyone I've ever seen. That's very true. You know what? That's a good and point. So you he brought just, that up. He's like, I don't want to fix this because it's hard, but I do want to add four hundred dobacks to fucking Tatooine. Which again, just isn't that big of an issue for me. It, it's like, I don't know. There's a fine line between punk rock and just writing bad music you know <laughs> not saying that george lucas is a bad filmmaker i wouldn't say that but i just think that they had an opportunity to to make some some fixes yeah um i think that what i mean one of the things i saw when i look at his um like older body of film work his films before he started doing feature films were documentary shorts. They were experimental films. Like his first thing I think was a one minute short film that was completely experimental. It was all made from sound bites from the news and all these things. Like it was very weird and very disjointed. That was kind of his style. And then when he came to Hollywood and really wanted to make movies, he ended up working and befriending Francis Ford Coppola who then kind of challenged him and says, I know you don't want to be in the Hollywood system. He's like, I'm going to, he's like, I'm going to go to San Francisco too. I'm going to do this, but I challenge you make a comedy, make something like that. So he made, um, American graffiti and he did a pretty damn good job with it, but he kind of does things and takes them on as challenges. But I think now that I've studied a little bit more about his style, when I go watch things that he's made, yeah, I can see where it's like, eh, I'm not a fan of this, but I can see like, oh, that's a choice that George Lucas made. That's something that's definitely him. There's definitely things that I think are parts that aren't 
as pieced together as well and things like that. But I guess from a filming making perspective, I respect the choices that he makes and that he, for the most part, not including digital editing stuff that he's added into other films later on. Um, I find it very impressive that he, uh, has his own style and his, his own work to it. Cause that's a little bit rarer to see nowadays. You know, Jared, I will try to think of it that way. That's I, that's how I just, I will, it. I will do my damnedest for you. <laughs> but at the same time, if you don't like it, you don't like it. And there's, that's what it is. Um, let's really get into, in terms of reception, story elements and plot choices that were criticized. I started talking about this a lot at the beginning um, and so now we're going to really dive into this. First off, let's talk about the politics. Jesus Christ. There's a lot of politics. There's a lot of politics in this movie. International trade, Senate votes, chancellors, bureaucracy. Uh, it's been likened to C-SPAN. The moment the movie begins, you get the scroll. And it's just a fucking congressional transcript. It's like... Reading that as a kid, I was like, I don't know what that means. It's going really fast. And Neither then I read that, it as an so. adult, and I was like, way to grab me, George. Way to stick me in my seat <laughs> with this fucking TV guide description of what's going on in a Senate hearing. <laughs> right? It's like, I get it, but watching the movie again last night, the movie is literally like battle scene, C-SPAN. Battle scene, C-SPAN. Ooh, a pod race. C-SPAN, right? Like, and as a kid, my eyes just glazed over during those parts of the movie. And that's tough for me because a lot of the things that people use to defend this are, well, this is a movie for kids. That's why Jar Jar is fine and all this. Really? Because kids don't know what the fuck any of this means and they don't that's care about it. Um, I think one of the things that I was trying to articulate a little bit earlier when we were talking about the editing and the I may have gone too far in a few places thing the thing that I had, I guess that I was really had admired about the movie was in terms of the ending and how everybody said that that was very choppy. But listening to it with the director's commentary of how he interwove three or four different plot lines altogether, I respected that. And I really liked how I'd never really watched the film from an analytical point of view. I just kind of watched it. It's not Star Wars. Turn it on. It's fun. I'll, I'm not tuned in as much to this part but i really paid attention and watched it a lot more the structure for all of the political parts definitely feels disjointed it always did no matter what if if they even made any changes or anything like that uh later on there's i mean they change a lot of stuff so it's too, kind of too hard to count it but um those scenes are definitely disjointed and that's a very good point and an argument to make about it being a movie for kids because you're right, kids aren't that. Those are the scenes I was least interested in. Um, Star Wars has always had one th elements of politics to it, so it's absolutely not new. Yeah. But I think in the original trilogy, it was you didn't need like a, a political science degree to understand what was happening. No, and even then, I had to like when I went back and watched it. I do admit I was kind of like, okay, so. There's a trade dispute. They're on the boot. Like you saw me, I had difficulty explaining the plot for the, this at the beginning because I'm like, there's a lot of political stuff, and I'm still not a hundred percent sure what it is. Like I could, if I went back and I read it, I could go, oh, that makes sense, perfectly. 
But if I have to sit here and explain it, it's hard to explain it very it's basically, simply. basically, Senator Palpatine is like, make Coruscant great again. He wants to drain the swamp and get all the people he doesn't like out so that he can get into power and start doing Sith shit. Right? Meanwhile... It's better than I could have said it. Concurrently with that, there's this whole plot of Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and Anakin and trying to get that, you know, the boy who lived kind of thing going over there, right? And so it's really just those two things intersecting with each other. And the whole Trade Federation thing is kind of like, it's, it, I mean, Qui-Gon even says it, it's trivial. He says that in the first five minutes of the movie, that it's trivial. And it really kind of is. That's like, the whole thing with the Trade Federation is kind of a red herring for what's actually going on which is this whole usurping, grabbing power secretly and putting yourself in position for what's going to happen four movies from now. Yeah. I mean, it even alludes to that at the very end of the film when they're um, uh, cremating Qui-Gon Jinn's body in the Jedi Temple. I think they're in the Jedi Temple. Um, and they're all sitting around. You see the conversation between Yoda and Mace Windu where they say that it was it had to have been the Sith because there can be only two. There's no doubt the mysterious warrior was a Sith. Mm. Always two there are. No more, no less. A master and an apprentice. But which was destroyed? The master or the apprentice? It's a good scene. It's a good shot and a good hint it, at it. It's a great um, scene, except for the fact that most Jedi's Jedi, God damn it, fade away <laughs> like that after they die. And then Qui-Gon sticks around for long enough to have a bunch of weird congressional shit happen, and then they take him to the Jedi Temple, then they burn him, and then he disappears. Yeah. Other than that hmm. little thing that bothered me, it's a great scene. Beautiful. Yeah, that's a good point. The next big point of contention is the introduction of something called midi-chlorians. Oh boy. According to, according to, I love saying this, according to Wikipedia, midi-chlorians were microscopic intelligent life forms that originated from the foundation of life in the center of the galaxy and ultimately resided within the cells of all living organisms, thereby, thereby forming a symbiotic relationship with their hosts. The Force spoke through the midi-chlorians, allowing certain beings to use the Force if they were sensitive enough to its powers. In order to gauge an individual's potential in the force, blood tests were used to estimate the number of midichlorians within the subject cells. <laughs> the definition... So what do you think of that? I I don't necessarily hate it, but then, like, at the same time, the definition of what it is makes me hate it so much because the force is, like, this mystical thing... You have all these temples and all this history and all this folklore behind it. And in the original trilogy, you don't really know where it comes from. It's just kind of this, this sort of intangible idea, right? And now suddenly, we're testing for it like space diabetes. And they're taking blood and they're going, oh, he has, uh, he has 15 midichlorians. But this other guy only has two midichlorians. So he's less of a Jedi. Than the, than the other guy who, who has 14. And it's like, 
dude, what? I, I, I just, I, I don't so, get it. So I don't hate the idea of it either. Um, but I think that given Lucas's ideas for episodes seven, eight, and nine, where it gets into this idea of, and you can go find this online, um, talking, basically he did an interview with James Cameron for a series he did for AMC, uh, I think a couple years ago. And he talks about this thing where it's going to get into this idea of a microbiotic, um, or my, sorry, not microbiotic, microscopic world within uh, the universe with these beings that are called the wills that was originally something that was going to be in the first star wars uh movies or it was the idea of it was going to be introduced the title of the very first star wars draft was something like the adventures of luke star killer taken from the journey of the wills part one like it was Fuck way too me. long but that was an idea that it was really going to be about these people chronicling everything that happens in the galaxy during this period of time and i think that Disney obviously did not decide to go with it, which I think for Disney's sake was a good choice. If Lucasfilm had stood alone and George Lucas just made the films on his own, I think it would have been interesting to see it. For Disney, they have a different like idea and a different vision for what it should be. And I get why they strayed away from certain things that were darker and all of that because it's it's essentially, it's a family movie. A lot of the films are all really reminiscent of that first Star Wars. It's but pretty fucking dark. I, think it would have, I don't think it's as dark as some of the other things that I've seen. Like, I think that there's certain set pieces for sure, like Exegol in Rise of Skywalker is what, definitely one of the darkest things that Star Wars has ever done, but it has a very... I don't know. I think the route that he was going towards would have been... I think it definitely would have done what the political talk in Episode 1 would have done. It would have flown over people's heads. Um, and... It may not have worked if he did it the way that he wanted to, but I still would have been interested to see it explored. But even with that being said, there's novels, there's comic books, there's all sorts of things that can expand on that. And there's ways that it can be explained. Yeah. I guess in the, in the contrast of this movie, I don't hate it, but I think I would have had a bigger problem with it. I have a bigger problem with it now because it's just, it's kind of abandoned. And it's not really explored. Yeah. I mean, that's really my issue. And the other thing that I don't like about it is I don't like the whole, like, immaculate conception thing where yeah. Anakin doesn't have a father. And the, theoretically, it was just the midichlorians kind of being like, you're going to have Anakin. Like, what? There's a theory that Palpatine... Um, implanted not literally implanted but used basically the force to implant midichlorians into his mother and birth him that way because he was obviously like the most powerful thing in the entire galaxy and he could have essentially done that if you look at the layout like it's not a totally unplausible thing if they were to go back further and explain yeah, that. Yeah, but like but I don't know, man. If you look at this though, one of the whole things about the force is like, right, my mother had it, my father had it, my sister had it. I have it, right? Anakin's mom didn't have shit, and he has the most midichlorians of anybody. So then that doesn't make any sense. It's it, it's just I I don't know. It seems like a George Lucas idea that he wedged in there and it it's there, but it doesn't it doesn't mean anything to the rest of the series, really. Yeah. I think it could have been... 
and I think that was the thing that was interesting. He was he was going to do seven, eight, and nine. He had a plan for it. Then Disney came to him, and he really that was the first. He had a talk with Bob Iger, and it was just a talk. They weren't going to do it. He said, "I'm thinking about selling. If I was to sell to anybody, it would be to you guys." But I got to think about it. And he took some time. And I think one of the things he evaluated was as he was getting ready, like they were, he was working with a screenwriter to make seven, eight, and nine. It wasn't working out but he was still working on doing it independently as Lucasfilm. But the problem that he realized was he said, I'm, I think he was like in his 60s. He, I think he's in his 70s now. He said, I don't know if I'm going to be around if I'm 80 and this is going to be a 10-year commitment. And I'm just, he wanted to be with his kids. He wanted to be with his family. And I admire that greatly. I, like I said, I would have been very interested to see what he did, but um, I think that if the choice was my mental health versus Star Wars, I would take my mental health. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's a fair a fair pick. Uh, there was a fun fact, though, that was that kind of came out of all this, though. We actually all have midichlorians. We do. In 2006, uh, Nate Lowe discovered a new species of bacteria in mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, um, and named it uh, midichloria mitochondria. So we all have it technically by default great i guess i should get there a blood test and figure out how badass i am you think they do that at stanford do you think that's included in my health insurance uh yeah hi excuse me i'd like to get my uh, my midichlorian count tested please oh we're not gonna have health insurance soon okay uh continuing on with this that was dark i'm sorry um Let's talk a little bit more about the backlash surrounding Jar Jar Banks. And I think the first thing that I had an issue with was while the movie itself, they may have said it was for kids, and then there were things that contrast that, like the political talk. Jar Jar Banks was definitely a character that was made for kids. I have a friend who had never seen any of the films before, and he watched them, and I said, I'm just warning you, the prequels, they're okay. They're, you're not, I don't think you're going to love them. But they're fun for what they are. There are good moments in them. There are some things that I don't love. And he watched them with his kids who were seven, five, and like three or four. And whenever Jar Jar would come on the screen, he'd kind of roll his eyes and be like, oh, it's stupid. And the kids would be laughing their ass off. Like, that was who it was made for. I was a kid when I saw this, and I laughed at certain things that he said. As I got older, I was like, eh didn't age as well for me but. yeah i mean i loved him as a kid i was jar jar binks for halloween the year that this came out oh that's i still awesome. have the mask in my parents <laughs> garage somewhere um <laughs> and, cool. and you know i thought he was fine as a kid but like watching it again every time i've watched it within the last five or six years which has not been that often i i just can't i can't handle it man he's like sebastian the crab meets peewee herman and then that they fuck and then they birth out some kind of weird German jazz musician, Caribbean racist thing. And it just runs around being a dipshit for two hours. So let's talk about that then. There was definitely pieces of this where people, and I didn't really even know about this until I started researching it, but several people were saying that characters like Jar Jar Banks and Watto were racist 
the Nemoidians of the Trade Federation were racist and evoked East Asian stereotypes. Let's first, let's unpack this. Let's first talk about Jar Jar. As a kid, I didn't see him as any race, but I, to me, that was the one that was a little bit of a leap for me. You talk about that a little bit because I know you had some things to say about that. Well, I mean, part of this is maybe because I studied this a lot in school. Um, but he definitely has a lot of the classic qualities of, of like a minstrel show, <laughs> which it, you know, it, it's not a good thing. Those traditionally depicted black people as kind of being dimwitted and buffoonish and, and Jar Jar embodies a lot of those same characteristics, especially if you attribute his accent to being of Caribbean descent, which a lot of people do. Um, yeah. The hard part for me on that is is that he is a Gungan, so any of that stuff is kind of attributed onto him by the audience to an extent. Um, but it's it was also a choice that was made and encouraged through directing and and producing the film, right? So it's a, it's a hard pill to swallow a little bit looking back on it. Um, but I definitely think it's it's something that can't go unsaid. I don't know exactly how I feel yeah. about it a hundred percent, and I don't know how I feel about it. Either. I mean, and let's be honest, neither of us are really in a position where we can make that call. You know what I mean? It's it, it's not. But I thought we were two middle class white men who had a lot of things See, that's to say. Exa- I thought that that's was exactly. The, I thought that was the point of this goddamn that's show. Exactly my I thought point, that was. Jared, is, <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly my point is that no yeah, you know, we, it, yeah. it's something that that um we can acknowledge it, it ultimately mm-hmm. it, it brings up a lot of questions for people who show the movie to their kids and whether or not that's something they want them to see but um it's kind of user beware i think ultimately i will say though that any depictions of things like racist stereotypes and characters I definitely see far more in Watto, and I definitely see far more in the Nemoidians of the trade. Fe- I mean, you can't not think that they're, the Nemoidians are like Japanese or Eastern Asian businessmen. Like, that's what it looks like to me in the way that they speak, the way that their faces and the makeup is done. Like, I don't know. There's just a lot of things that stick out to me in that and that's definitely where i see anything that was done in poor taste um i know that jar jar was based off of goofy as at least that's what george lucas says right. which um, makes total sense because that's exactly what we needed in star wars <laughs> gosh hey, let's like go goofy. fight the fucking empire <laughs> <laughs> but that also be kind of awesome and also disney now owns star wars so that may not be as far oh, off as God, you think don't no <laughs> nope if they did a Disney cartoon, I'd be cool with it. Like they did a goofy cartoon, how to fly your speeder or how to like that. That could be it, cool. There could be a couple of little things that are fun. It could. It, it could. Yes. Okay. Um, anyway. But yeah, dude, I, I agree with you about the Nemordians hundred percent. I think even as a kid, I was like, whoa, what the fuck? Um, and watching it as an adult now, it's, it's pretty obvious. Um, and then Watto is, is a, is almost he's he's very mysterious to me because he somehow manages to be racist 
against like Jewish, Greek, and Arabic people all at the same time, which is almost like an accomplishment. I don't, I don't know how to even think about this. It's people all agree that he's very offensive. Um, mainly, I think because of that line that he says, "The Jedi mind tricks don't work on him; only money." I have twenty thousand Republic dactaries. Republic credits. Republic credits are no good out here. I need something more real. I don't have anything else, but credits will do fine. No, they won't. Credits will do fine. No, they won't. What, you think you're some kind of Jedi waving your hand around like that? I'm a Tidarian. Mind tricks don't work on me. Only money. No money, no parts, no deal. He's literally got like a giant proboscis. Which, if you're going off of old school stereotypes, you know where that fits, right? So, it, a little shaky, for sure. Um, as a kid, I just thought he was like some gross asshole. Um, I know he drew. I know he drew a lot of comparisons to Shylock in uh, William Shakespeare's *The Merchant of Venice*. Um, yeah, people actually but... call this *The Merchant of Menace* because of that. <laughs> which good. is, yeah, I mean, that's there good. You go, a little fun out of all this. Yeah weird potential hate that i mean that's the thing that i'll say is i don't i don't think that any of this stuff comes from a place of hatred in the movie i don't think it's designed absolutely be, not i just think they were to yeah. be that way but like it's also something that if you were to make a movie like this now those things would come up in 1999 maybe 100%. not so much right um and i was reading an article earlier that made an interesting point about this is that this is the first time really in Star Wars that they just had all the aliens speak English or basic as they call it in the Star Wars I universe. noticed that too. Because um, normally yeah. they just speak their own language with subtitles and like, there you go. There's no, there's no opportunity for this to be created. And I think back then it was like, oh, this is really cool and new. People don't really do this. And for this one, it was like, ah, fuck it. Just make them speak English. It's easier yeah, Watto talks a little bit in his in that language, but then yeah, usually if they were you see the if you look at an older film and you were to see how they would introduce any alien species in those films, th it would automatically just be subtitled right away. And then they would be talking and then the characters would talk back to them in English because they can speak it or they can understand it but not speak it, and yet somehow, I don't know, the science behind that was all weird. But I see what you mean, 100%. Um, I, I definitely think, and I agree with you, that nothing was done out of ill intent. Absolutely not. But I think, and particularly today, in today's day and age, when you look at things that are racist and not racist, you can see things that are, okay, this wasn't done out of hatred or out of any ill will or anything like that but it still does not come off well and that still it it opens up this conversation about what is racist what isn't and then how do you go forward with not doing those stereotypes i know that there was another article as well that said that they've got a vibe kind of like uh flash gordon the the yellow peril in uh the flash gordon I know that George Lucas has a huge affinity for Flash Gordon. That was why he started doing and looking into space movies. He wanted to 
he originally wanted to make a Flash Gordon movie. He tried to get the rights. He got denied. And then he said, okay, then I'm going to make my own thing. And that turned into Star Wars. We've come a long way in movies since 1999. Even in 1999, we came a long way since Mickey Rooney was dressed like a Chinese guy. You know what I mean? Like, there's... Yeah, that is the only reason Breakfast at Tiffany's is not a perfect there's movie. There's a lot of, of stepping stones. Yeah. And I think this this is an opportunity for people who are making their own content now to learn about how you characterize a species, right? It's like, how do you create a new race? I don't think the way to do it is to take shit from stereotypes of existing races and then just plop it onto a CGI background or plop it into an alien suit, right? I think it it, it takes more than that. So I think we've come a long way, and I think this film was a very good first step towards starting a conversation. I guess in that sense, not the fil- what, not the film made for that purpose, but for the commentary and some of the things that were talked about in terms of that, it was a good first step towards. Okay, so we've come a long way since something like Breakfast at Tiffany's. Now we're here. So where do we go from here in that case in advance? And I think that. While there's always still work to do, I think it was, I think films have definitely advanced far more in what is acceptable what's and what's not um, in film since 1999. Even within Star Wars, man. Even within Star Wars. Yeah, absolutely. So 100% Um, agree on that. Yeah. So I pulled two reviews for this. One, um, just as kind of looking through critic reviews, I didn't deep dive into this because there's positive ones and then i just i didn't want to deal with looking through the barrage of shit you can read it online in terms of negative reviews i pulled one that was kind of neutral on it in that it pointed out flaws and um some positive notes so this first review is from roger ebert from the chicago sun times your positive review is from roger ebert yes he gave this a three and a half out of no four fucking star. way yeah that dude, i see that- I see more positive reviews from Roger Ebert than I do from anybody else. I find that, that pretty, pretty baffling. Yeah, I wonder. But uh, so he, George might have paid him a little visit. You know Jesus. what I mean? So Roger Ebert basically said this, and this is just a little excerpt from this. Sometimes our common sense undermines a sequence. For instance, when Jar Jar's people and he and the good guys fight a droid army, it becomes obvious that the droids are such bad fighters they should be returned for a refund. But mostly, I was happy to drink in the sights on screen in the same spirit that I might enjoy Metropolis, Forbidden Planet, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Dark City, or The Matrix. The difference is that Lucas's visuals are more fanciful and his film's energy level is more cheerful. He doesn't share the prevailing view that the future is a dark and lonely place. What he does have in abundance is exhilaration. There's a sense of discovery in scene after scene of The Phantom Menace as he tries out new effects and ideas and seamlessly integrates real characters and digital ones, real landscapes and imaginary places. We are standing at the threshold of a new age of epic cinema, I think, in which digital techniques mean that budgets will no longer limit the scope of scenes. Filmmakers will be able to show us just about anything that they can imagine. As for the bad rap about characters, hey, I've seen space operas that put their emphasis on human personalities and relationships. They're called Star Trek (laughs) movies. Give me transparent underwater cities and vast hollow senatorial spheres any day. Shots fired, Shadow. What's funny about this 
is that it proves that he completely doesn't understand Star Wars. Because he, okay, he says tell. that he doesn't share the prevailing view that the future is a dark and lonely place. This shit happened in a galaxy far, far away a long time ago. This isn't the future. But, okay, and but the, you and have to... Because we know what the future is for the people in this movie, we know that the future is, in fact, dark and lonely as fuck. Okay, but... Uh... But I know what he's referring to. He's referring he to sci-fi. He just likes movies. looking he's at spaceships. To... He liked watching <laughs> Watto fly around and be problematic. He just he had a he had a fun time at the movies with his popcorn, and that's good. I'm happy for him. So the negative review I found was from Kenneth Turin of the Los An- uh, excuse me Kenneth Turin of the Los Angeles Times. Um, this was I pulled this review because it was kind of it had negative aspects, but it was more more so kind of neutral and it actually gave decent i think criticism of certain parts of this towards the end Let's of the review. But unfortunately for a film that has three times more computer generated shots than any previous effort, its biggest miscalculation is a computer generated sidekick. That would be Jar Jar Binks, one of a race of Naboo underwater residents known as the Gungan. Looking like a large and ungainly seahorse, Jar Jar, who inexplicably speaks in kind of a Caribbean patois, is a major miscue. A comic, mis- a comic relief character who's frankly not funny. The Gungan as a whole proved very difficult to understand, and when you can make out what they're saying, you wish you hadn't. <laughs> Despite its many shortcomings, The Phantom Menace is certainly adequate, and given the story's strong core idea and the residual power lurking in the Force, it's not necessary to dismiss it out of hand. It's just that the tale it tells isn't all that interesting. In fact, if Lucas wasn't partial to the idea of trilogies, Phantom could have been condensed down to a brief prologue tacked on to the beginning of the next installment. To best to put the best possible face on things, maybe the Force's creator, like a canny strikeout artist, was willing to waste his first pitch before dazzling us with his best stuff next time around. Ooh, he didn't know what he was getting in the next time around, did he? <laughs> so, um, I think that part of that is a, I think part of that is a fair criticism in the sense that um, it's. I think that that film actually could have been condensed down quite frankly. I think it's, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but um, years ago, Topher Grace um, actually somehow took the copies of his Star Wars DVDs, the first three, and he edited his own version of all three movies into one film. Yeah, I remember that. And he can't. He can't screen it anywhere because of licensing rights or anything like that, but there's people who have seen it, and they said that it improved on all three of the films in a really, really impressive way. I'm sure that it um, did. I'm interested to see that, but I think for me it's it's almost twofold in the sense that I think things can be cut down, but I also just, it's a Star Wars movie. I just kind of enjoy the journey of it. Well, I think that's the general consensus critically is that the movie was fine. It's a fun sci-fi movie. If you don't have high expectations for it, you're going to like it. If you're expecting something that's groundbreaking and like a masterpiece, like A New Hope was, you're not really going to get that. But if you like Star Wars, you're still going to want to see it. And it. Like, that's ultimately how I feel about it, too. It's like, I'm glad that they made it. I am happy that I learned what happened. But I think they could have gone more of like a Rogue One route and just made one really good movie instead of three kind of okay movies to round this out before we get into a brief touch on what we liked and what we didn't like 
I knew this was going to go as a very long episode. This is There's a lot to unpack in this one, more so than any of the other films on this list. But um, let's talk about the legacy beyond 1999, which is one of the things we're doing with this show and really going into that. One of the first things that I we need to touch on absolutely is that digital filmmaking and CGI would be nowhere near as revered and as advanced as it would be without this film. More than... 1900 shots in this movie have visual effects the the team who did this had to create brand new software just to get the cloth to look right on the digital character's clothing that i mean that's that's like pixar shit where you the technology doesn't exist to make a certain um element of a character so you have to just build the technology that's essentially what they did with star wars they didn't have the visual effects team so he built a visual effects studio that would do it. Yeah, they were doing some cool stuff too. And and you touched on this earlier with like the digital painting with backgrounds. Yeah, it's amazing. 70% of the shit in the pod racing scenes is is all digital matte paintings pasted on top of 3D geometry. It's like that kind of stuff wasn't being done before this. And now that kind of shit is happening all the time. When I was watching it with the commentary, I didn't realize this until one of the visual effects artists pointed this out. When in the first scene when they meet Jar Jar Banks and they're about to dive into the water and go to the Gungan City, they pointed out that the other things that they also had to take into account when compositing the character, they had to get all of the shadowing right every time he turned his head, every time he moved his hands. The planet is very humid as they pointed out, so they had to do that. And it's just little things that I never even picked up on. There's, like, humidity on all of them. They're a little bit perspired. There's shadowing and light, and the light hits them a certain way, so that has to be reflected without it looking too fake. It's really impressive, and it's like, and now that's, like, a standard for making any kind of a character now. Oh, yeah, man. I mean, the next character after Jar Jar that really did that was Gollum in Lord of the Rings. Yes. Right? And if you look at the jump from Jar Jar to Gollum in terms of the the level of detail, the level of light and shadow, the motion capture of the face, all that kind of stuff. It, it was a huge jump in really not that long of a time. And then you go from there, and now we've got Avatar, we've got Caesar and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, right? You've got the fucking Lion King, which is 100% animated, you know? And it's live action, but it's not. And that's all really because of Jar Jar right and so I mean seriously as annoying as he might be he was the predecessor to some really really cool shit and like thinking about other just like minor things in this movie like the Gungan shield system in that battle scene with the droids when I was watching that I'm like oh shit this almost looks like the scene in Infinity War in Wakanda where they released their big shield and you've got all the aliens coming in and it's like that technology we don't have that scene in Infinity War if we don't have that scene in uh, Phantom Menace and so you know I'm I'm thankful for this movie not necessarily because of what it is but because of what it's allowed to happen since then absolutely Um, I guess with that being said where do you stand on the idea of too much CGI not enough practical effects or that argument well, as a kid, when it came out, I didn't care because I didn't really understand the difference between those two things. Yeah, you're just watching a Star Wars movie, and it's like, cool, I'm in this world. So now, as an adult, 
it's like we're of a generation where practical effects are kind of lame you know what i mean like i think that a lot of the time we watch old movies and we think now oh, that looks really weird and lame because it's it's like a, a dude in a costume or something right with this one now we're also of an age where we can look back at this and go that cgi doesn't look good enough either so I, I mean i don't really know how i would feel right like would a weird guy in a costume have made a better jar jar probably not right and and part of the reason i say that is when you watch this movie so many of the characters are cgi but some of them are not so like in the same scene you could have jar jar sticking his tongue in the pod racer or whatever the fuck he's doing and then oh yeah and, and then anakin's little friend is like a, a kid in a costume jumping around and so i think seeing yeah i never made that jump that's right seeing those two things together i think bothered me in retrospect but we've gotten so much better at blending those things like i don't think now it would be a problem i think as a first test run with all of that technology really trying it for the first time on a major scale not bad for a first attempt and for honestly making it for i mean if you look at some of the budgets for certain movies now what did we say 115 million that's not bad i think wasn't infinity war like close to a hundred and like or sorry not Infinity end game like close to like 175 million or some Dude, shit like that. that like that's they made that back in 15 fucking seconds oh easily they made it back in 15 seconds but what the, yeah my my point is like i just think that for that like for that cost at that time that's it's impressive and with that even being said star wars is bigger than it's ever been if we're talking about the influence of it disney acquired the property as we've kind of talked about in throughout the show they created three sequel films, two standalone films. They continued and just finished the Clone Wars series on Disney Plus, which I think is in its seventh it and seventh final season. season. It was good. Yeah, well, um, it was good. We can talk about that another time. But. They've done numerous television series. They're doing the Mandalorian right now, which is I think one of, easily one of the best things that has ever come out of Star Wars. Yep. They've got a ton um, of shit in the then, works too. Yeah, and there's even more that we don't know about yet. All, it was recently announced Taika Waititi is doing a Star Wars film, which made me so fucking Can't happy. Wait. I'm so excited. Um, and then they released, they made Galaxy's Edge at Disneyland and Disney World. I never thought in my lifetime I would get to see the Millennium Falcon in any kind of Disney capacity because I knew that they did stuff with Star Tours and that was always part of the Disney parks. But I never thought I would see shit like that. Well, you and know what? You may I, never see it again. Yeah. Because it's still fucking closed. God damn it. Um, yeah, I don't know how that's going to go, but I hope to see it again one day. Um, to wrap this up, let's talk about our favorite parts and our least favorite parts. This is just as constructively round. as we can. It's kind of a speed round. Speed so we round. can elaborate on it if we want, but Andrew, you go first. Favorite parts of this movie. Okay. Favorite parts of the movie, hands down, Duel of the Fates, fucking one of the coolest songs in Star Wars history. Pops in with about 25 minutes left in the movie. That's when it starts getting good, right when they start the big fight scene with Darth Maul, which is another one of my favorite parts. The lightsaber work in this movie is excellent. It's the best lightsaber battling that they've had in a Star Wars movie, maybe ever. Oh, my God. 
two-on-one with Obi-Wan, Qui-Gon, and Darth Maul, it doesn't really get much better than that at all. Okay? Destroyer droids, fucking sick. Pod racing, also fucking sick. And the N64 game was amazing. I used to go to my friend's house to play it because I didn't have an N64. His parents would want me to get the fuck out of there, and I'd say, no, because I got to race. Okay? <laughs> Darth Maul, one of the coolest villains in Star Wars history. Obviously, gets cut in half. That's not great. But no. <laughs> he comes back in the Clone Wars with robot legs, and that's fucking sick too. Okay? And then finally, as weird and stunted as a lot of the dialogue is in this movie... And as much random exposition we get about midichlorians and all that fun shit, we get one of the best Star Wars quotes in history, which is fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. So fucking good. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. It's Star Wars dialogue, like, uh, but I mean the best of it. And it's because there's certain things when you look at and deconstruct the dialogue of those films, there are certain lines that just stick and they're really indicative of what the future films, it, like as a setup for future films. And that line sets up the entire series. It summarizes the opinion. entire nine movies. Yes, yes, 150%. Um, so that was, those were my favorites. My least favorite parts, battle droids. They should have been so fucking cool, but instead, they're these weird, shitty Jeff Bezos creations, and they talk like a woman with a stoma from the cigarette commercial when I was a kid. It scared me, and I don't like that. <laughs> Midichlorians could, could live without them. We don't need that shit. It's exposition that never needed to happen. Obi-Wan's haircut, another problem for me. It's, it, it is somewhat impressive that he has a flat top, a ponytail, and a Jedi braid at the same time. <laughs> but I'm glad that they toned the hair down for him a little bit moving forward. And then finally, the lack of shit talking in the lightsaber battles. You have these amazing lightsaber battles, and everyone's just fucking quiet. Especially in the scene where that red block thing is like separating them, and they have nothing to do but look at each other and talk shit. There's nothing else that they can do except look at each other and just say some fucked up crazy shit. And neither of them says anything. And it drives me fucking insane. Okay. I think um, I will start with some of my least favorite stuff first. And so that we'll close this out on a high note. I think we, I think next time we do this, we should structure it where we start with things that we liked least and then finish it out on a high note. Just as I'm thinking this during my head. But so some of the things I wasn't too keen on. We talked about this a little bit earlier. The idea of midi-chlorians, I don't hate, but I think that given that Lucas's ideas for 7, 8, and 9 explored more of that and Disney didn't go with it, I feel like it's not as useful in the stories anymore as it is. If he'd continued with his own vision of it, I think it would have made more sense. I think it could have been interesting, but I don't think it is as pertinent anymore. Um, the Senate and the Parliament scenes aren't structured in the best way. I understand completely what he was trying to do um Boris to tears and I will <laughs> I'll get to that when I talk about my favorite things but Lucas even admitted in previous interviews that is he's not the greatest at writing dialogue I think if scenes um if this if that scene when they're in the middle of the parliament and there's all of the different planets and federations all together or even scenes 
if those scenes had come from a screenwriter that maybe specialized in dramatic filmmaking, whereas he does more fantasy and experimental films, stuff like that, I think those scenes could have worked really, really well. Like, I imagine what it would have been like if... Um, I, trying to think of a dramatic writer. I'm my writer. I my names are really limited to like Aaron Sorkin and David Mamet. But like, how about Michael Arndt? Michael Arndt. Okay. Um. So from somebody like that, um, I think it would have worked incredibly well. I don't like in terms of things that were changed. I don't hate it, but I, I noticed this. I watched the film once on Disney Plus, and then I watched it again on the DVD about a week later with the commentary track just as I was doing research to see if there's anything I picked up on. I'd never watched it that way. But I noticed that in the Disney Plus version of this film, Yoda is completely CGI. Yeah, which is fucking in the stupid. Original, in the original film, he's a puppet, except for one shot in the film where you see him walking overhead. And then when it cuts back down, it's the puppet again. And I don't hate it, but I don't love the idea of changing absolutely everything. While I said I like and really admire that he sticks to his guns in terms of story choices and certain things, I don't love that he always just kind of goes back and then re-digitizes certain things. And it's because I think that certain things in film should stay timely because it's a reflection of what the technology was like at the time, and it's a marker for how things were at a certain point. It doesn't bug me that he went in and, like, added... Everybody has problem with this for some reason, but that he added in like do backs and things in the in the New Hope and things like that. Do you know but why people have a problem with that, Jared? Why? Because it is a problem. Okay, why is it a problem? You can put too much seasoning on your food. Okay, all right. And I it'll taste like shit. I understand that. You point see of what view. I mean? It's you. There's too much. There's a point of of too much. Okay, that's a fair point, and I and I understand why people do. I understand. Why people don't like it, I don't understand the hatred. I guess that's more it's, what I It's mean. more of that digital dick-wagging. <laughs> okay. Um, now, I will say, I think it's cool, though, that there is still a... The original version of this exists in tandem with the new version out there. Because I, I think it's cool to see how things were at a certain period in time. And I'm glad I have the ability to see it from the way that it originally was made in the 90s. Well, and it's but, interesting that we both watched the movie yesterday... And we both had different experiences watching the same movie yeah. at the same time. Yeah, I think, it, I think it really is interesting. The music, in terms of my favorite parts of this film, the music, this is easily one of the greatest John Williams scores that's ever been recorded. I mean, like you said with Duel of the Fates, the chorus backing in that is absurdly incredible. From the moment the door opens and Darth Maul's just standing there, and the Jedi just go, we'll take it from here. And it's just, you know that shit is about to go it's so fucking epic. completely down. And it's one of the most epic things Star Wars has ever done. I really love the world exploration in the, like, in the sense that the first shot where you see all of Naboo, and then you see the city that's located in the ocean underneath that world. I think that one of my favorite things of the entire series is the world building that they do. It adds to this really incredible layer of it, and I've always truly loved that. It's something that I do kind of wish that the newer films had touched on. There's a few exceptions. Like, I think that Exegol was really cool, and there's a lot of really amazing things, but I think just um, Jakku was basically Tatooine. Um, Starkiller Base was the Death Star combined with Hoth, and it's cool. I still visually appreciate it, 
but I like that he tried a few different things, and I thought that was fun. Pod racing, which may have been one of my all-time favorite Star Wars sequences ever. Like, even if they extend that by, like, 20 minutes, I will watch the whole thing because it's as close to, like, it's as close to sports-loving as I will ever get. I want them to make a full movie about pod racing. Oh, God, that would be like, you know, awesome. And, like, in the style of, like, Ford versus Ferrari. Yeah, like, that'd be amazing. How fucking sick would that be, dude? I, touching on the idea of the pod racer game, that is, I think, my favorite fav- my favorite video game of all time because it did the same thing with world building. You went to all of the planets that were in, that were, you just hear once talked about in the show or in, uh, sorry, in the film. Um, and you really get to explore it and it adds to that. And I, I just, I, I love it every single time. I've even considered, because I have an N64 still and I have that game. But I've even considered getting um, just, like, a crappy, cheap, like, Windows laptop PC with a disk drive because I have the game on uh, CD-ROM still. It's buried somewhere in my family's house in San Jose, but I'll find it because I would love to just, like, play it again. It's no, it's still, so, it's it's still so much fun. fun, man. Um, the introduction of the Sith with Darth Maul really set the tone for how dark the Sith are as characters and... If the new Star Wars films start that are coming in the next few years do go back further in time and explore the Knights of the Old Republic or how the Jedi and the Sith started, which I feel like that's probably where they would go with that if they're into explaining everything, um, I can't wait to see the origins of it and how dark it could be. They probably started in a lab, <laughs> and that's where they picked up the midichlorians in their blood. Jesus. And then one of them got on the plane and came to America got it. and landed in Seattle. And then a bunch of people in a nursing home got midichlorians. And then, yeah, you see where I'm going with Okay. That. Two last things that I really love. The structure of the story at the end of the film where it introduced three things all going on at once. While there are scenes in the movie that are disjointed, like the political scenes, I think this section is very well edited together, even though I know when they were editing it, it was probably very clunky and it didn't work. I think they got it down to what it could be, and I really liked that. The last thing that I truly love about this movie is this is such a George Lucas film. And by that, I mean from other interviews and things that I've read and all the stuff that I'd researched. He really talks about his love of history and understanding the world. He really wasn't huge into sci-fi. Like, that was something he liked, the Flash Gordon serials and all that stuff that I talked about earlier. But he grew up just absorbing everything that he could with history, uh, looking back at ancient civilizations, at other worlds, looking at all the different things that really make people who they are. He was really into anthropology. He had all these wide interests, and he always has tried to condense them down into something that is a medium like science fiction and Star Wars. Maybe it doesn't work every single time, but I respect the shit out of the fact that he's like, this is the vision that I have, and this is what we're going to do. If you love it, great. If not, then take it for what it is. There's even moments that he points out um, of experimental film in the movie. So in the scene where Qui-Gon first fights Darth Maul when he jumps off the bike, 
he intentionally only showed close shots of just like the sabers facing each other. He didn't really show the background. I, again, I didn't even really pick up on this until I looked at it. And he cut it in weird ways so you couldn't really see what was going on. You just got an idea that, oh, there's a fight going on, but there's no dialogue. You can't, you can only infer from sound and from the brief visuals that you see. And I think that's cool. I think that's a very almost non-blockbuster way to do it. And it's very much part of the film school generation that people like him and Spielberg grew up in. I got Sir Wade, I'm tired. Anakin, drop! Go! Tell them to take off! Spielberg obviously went on to make films that were a bit more blockbuster and Hollywood-like, which, and he did, I think he perfected the genre, in my opinion, but I think that each of those directors from that era all kind of have little hints of the film school uh, teachings that they came off of, and I always, I think that's cool. I've always really liked that about him, whether or not the film worked or not, so... Well, I respect the fact that you respect that. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. That's cool. All right, we did it. As a matter of fact, with that, we want to hear from you guys if you're listening to the show. What did you think about this movie? Did you agree with it? Did you or did you agree with any of our points? Did you not like what we said? Um, be respectful, but let us know. You can email us <laughs> at 1999pod at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram at the underscore 1999 underscore podcast and then you can find us again on twitter at the 1999 podcast there you go um so next week's film is going to be a big departure from science fiction um we're going to be talking about m night Shyamalan's debut film debut blockbuster feature film the sixth sense um that's that's the movie no the movie's really fantastic um and i'm excited i haven't seen this movie in a few years and i'm very excited to watch it again have you seen this movie before i have seen this movie before cool all right so i watched it actually for the first time i think last year nice it's it's we'll get into it next week when we talk about it again um the movie is available to i don't know if it's streaming anywhere i should have found that out beforehand but you can always uh do a digital rental on itunes i youtube google play all the places like that um pirate bay BitTorrent. i wouldn't go you on pirate bay smart. or BitTorrent. um get a vpn if you do all right um if we're gonna stick with what we did last week then be kind rewind we'll see you next week bye coming soon to theaters You know the accident there? Yeah. Someone got hurt. They did? A lady. She broke her neck. Oh my god, but you can see her? Yes. Where is she? Standing next to my window. talk to your mom about how things are i don't tell her things why not because she doesn't look at me like everybody else and i don't want her to i don't want her to know know what i see dead people walking around like regular people i don't see anything are you sure they're there sometimes you feel it inside
going down real fast. You ever feel the prickly things on the back of your neck? Yes. That's them. They get mad. It gets cold. How often do you see them? All the time. I think that they know that you're one of these very rare people who can see them. So you need to help them. What if they don't want to help? I don't think that's the way it works. How do you know for sure? Is anyone there? Look out! 